Welcome to the first ever podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Bohm. Today, I'm talking to Claudio Sanchez. He's the front person of Coheed and Cambria, as well as a writer and comic book creator. This was a very last minute interview, and I'm so thankful that Claudio made himself available to do this. I, uh, my, my head was completely up my ass this last week from, uh, from the Touche record coming out that uh, I, all of a sudden it was like, oh my God, it's already Thursday. I got to get something done. So, uh, so he, uh, he was super kind and, and made himself available, and I'm, and I'm super thankful for that. Um, I'd only met him once or twice over the years, and uh, he was always very kind, um, but we never had any sort of deep conversations. So for this being our first one, it was uh, a genuine pleasure. Uh, we get to learn about his journey through music and writing and, uh, you know, the reasons why certain decisions were made along the way. This is uh, one of my favorite episodes yet. If you're a Coheed fan, you're going to have a great time. Or if you're just a musician looking for something to get inspired by, I think this is going to do it. So I really hope you enjoy. Thank you for being here. Uh, this is the first ever podcast, and this is my conversation with Claudio. Yo, thank you so much for for doing this, especially so last minute. I, I apologize for uh, <laughs> for the random bombardment. Just I think it was like a night a night or two ago. So, yeah, no thank problem. You. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Yeah, we had a a record came out last Friday, and I was I had a few episodes pre recorded, and I was feeling really good. Like I was like, yeah, everything's you know, like I'm not stressing out about the podcast. And then this week flew by so fast. And I was like, Oh my God, I, what the hell am I doing? I need to get somebody. And the fact that, that you were so kind to, to, to hop on it, it means a lot. So thank you for being here and doing this with me. I'm stoked. You're welcome. Thank you. Uh, are you, you're in New York still right now, right? I am. Yeah. I'm in uh crown Heights, Brooklyn. Oh, nice. How long have you been in Brooklyn? I've been in Brooklyn now. I want to say, uh, 10 years. Um, Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah, right. Actually, right before the pandemic, my wife and I, uh, we actually moved a few blocks away from our apartment and into, um, you know, into like a, a house situation. Um, so, uh, so it's been, it's been nice. We've been enjoying like the space and it's cool. Oh, absolutely. I can, I can only imagine. So you were born just outside of New York City. Is that correct? Yeah. I was born in a commuter town called Nyack. Well, Technically born in Suffren, but the uh, the county is Rockland, and Nyack is where I went to high school. Oh, okay, got it. And do you remember what your like first experience with music in general was? Like the first thing as a young person that you found yourself connecting to? Did that come pretty early for you? Um, you know, m- my dad listened to a lot. Both my parents listened to a lot of music, so it's really hard to pinpoint one specific moment. But I know some that that sort of stand out in my mind. And one in particular is kind of MTV. Okay. You know, I think about like, like, and the two songs that, that come to mind are uh, Michael Jackson's beat it and Madonna's material girl. <laughs> nice. Um, I, I feel like I, you know, it's uh, I always feel like when, when I think about that for myself as well, like I want to have this really outstanding, cool answer, but I think for me as well, Michael Jackson was, as a very young kid, the first thing that I connected to, because it's just, it's the catchiest thing in the world. Like, how do you not love that as a, as a young person? So it completely makes sense. Yeah. Like I, I can almost like remember being young and the television and like turning the dial on the television and how gratifying it was when they, when the channels would change and it would just kind of like you know, like there was such a reaction <laughs> yeah, yeah. from the television. Uh, but, uh, but, um, 
Yeah, I just remember those. Those, those. I think probably were my own personal moments. I'm sure there are so so many that you know just piggybacking off of like what my father may have been listening to or my mother. But I know those were moments that were mine, sitting in front of the television and being you know sort of mesmerized by um, by these figures on the television. Um, so yeah. What was, uh, I mean, like, what was the, the music around the house? Like, what, I mean, it's, I feel like it's always such a blessing when, when parents do kind of have their own taste as much as when you're young, I feel like maybe you don't care for what they're listening to. And that creeps itself back in when you're older. Some of the things that maybe they were enjoying that you didn't at the time. What, what was some of those, uh, do you remember what some of those artists were? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was, I was. I mean, I, I want to say I'm like, we're talking five years old, sure. you know, four, four or five years old. So it's like, whatever they listened to, I kind of fell in love with. And, um, you know, my father was really more of a rock guy. He also listened to a lot of Latin music, um, jazz. Um, and so some of those artists, I remember Sting was, was a, he was one that he played all the time. That record, nothing but uh, like the sun, you know, with the song Englishman in New York. I mean, that song, yeah, like feels like my childhood. Like I, I hear that, I, and I'm just like, I was actually kind of fortunate. One day we were. I'm sorry if I go off on a little bit of a tangent, but no, I love it. We, we were actually love at a like, yeah, <laughs> we were at <laughs> SIR, and we were like, you know, we like to rehearse pretty early, and somebody else in and Sting happened to be there in the room next door, and they were performing Englishman in in New York. Whoa! And I happened to be outside just because that song is. It's huge when I was a kid. It played all the time. My dad was like obsessed. I don't know. It felt like obsession, I guess. But um, and I'm like singing like the harmonies outside, and Josh is like filming <laughs> me, and we're just like super giddy because we're you know fans of the Police and of Sting, and and uh, one of the techs comes by and invites us in, and we Whoa. get to go and sit down and watch this song that was like so huge in my childhood, like performed like right in front of us in this intimate moment, and like. I remember when it was over, like Sting turns around and I'm just like, wow, I'm actually starstruck. This is really weird. And Josh like made a joke and we all just got super um, uh, embarrassed and like ran out of the <laughs> like a bunch of silly <laughs> fools. But, um, but that, but yeah, so the, so, so Sting was one, my dad would listen to like, I don't know, like Spira Gyra or Bella Fleck and the Fleck Tones. He would listen to uh, Ruben Blades, uh, the Allman Brothers. Um, Jimi Hendrix was another one. He listened to that a lot. And I think that's where my curiosity for, for guitar started to kind of peak. Um, yeah. just cause listening to like all along the watchtower and the wah pedal in the solo section and just kind of being like, well, well, what is that? Um, sure. You know, and my mother was like sort of the other end of the spectrum. She was more of a pop, you know, radio listener, like, Things like Michael Jackson, things like, you know, Madonna or uh, Taylor Dane. For some reason, I remember Taylor Dane a lot. Um, you know, tell it to my heart. I don't know if we can say that. But yeah, stuff like that. That's cool, though. It's like you get that you had the mix of <clears throat> of the of the like classic rock and also sort of 80s rock with with the pop sensibility that uh that's like a nice mix, especially when you're young, you know, that's like, it's not a alienating music. I feel, you know, it's yeah. not like, uh, it, you know, your parents listen to like 
it's not as if they were listening to like really you know gritty just country music or something like that that kind of is a is a deterrent i think for a lot of young people that's certainly what was in my household so i was like not connecting to anything like that at all but um when did uh when did did oh well, first off did your did your folks play music at all or was any was anyone playing music in the house you know my dad played a little guitar um not like um like some of the other guys in the band, their, you know, fathers were, you know, professional musicians, but my dad oh, wow. just did it okay. sort of as like a, as a hobby. Um, and when I say, you know, yeah, like, yeah, he was more of a, it was, it was more of a hobby for my father. Um, he had an acoustic guitar that I think he bought from my brother very young and it just, you know, he'd play it every once in a while. Um, but I think at that moment in time, I wasn't really that interested in playing music. I didn't really think about that as like a thing, you know, just, I knew it was there. Um, but it wasn't, you know, for me, I think I just had some other interest. I mean, I was young. I didn't really know what my identity was, um, when that was around. So. Yeah, for sure. Like when you were, were you first connecting with comics when, uh, like more so? Uh, you know, I think for me, it was just anything like pop culture, you know, it's, whether it was like Saturday morning cartoons or move or like, movies, comic books, what it, you know, it's just, I, I, you know, I tend to be a bit of an introvert and, you know, it's funny, I was talking to somebody the other day about, you know, my memory, for example. And I'm like, and I'm like, you know, I, I feel like I have a horrible memory, but I'm starting to realize that it's not my memory. That's the problem. It's the fact that I'm not really living in the moments, you know, the things that people are remembering, they're there. I happen to be like sort of off in my head, you know, doing something else. Um, and, uh, and I think, you know, I think that stuff sort of got magnified when I was younger, like just watching these things that were fantastic, you know, the He-Man or G.I. Joe or, you know, these like, right. you know, or, or Star Wars for, you know, Star Wars is a very huge for me. I think it, it certainly uh, was a big inspiration and in why I chose science fiction as the playground to tell, you know, the story behind the Coheed records. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, I, I think, I think I was just, you know, I was just a kid. I, you know, when music was introduced to me, I was still, I just wanted to play video games and be a child, you know? For sure. I mean, it's funny you, you talking about how, you know, you get sort of lost in that as, as a kid. It's, it's, uh, is this to say that our parents were right with the whole TV rots your brain? <laughs> thing? <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like, well, I can't remember the first time I, I, you know, got a good grade on something, but I could tell you where I was when I saw this episode of He-Man, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> that's, uh, <laughs> that's amazing. Um, yeah, I, I mean, science, I have to imagine when, when the Star Wars movies first came out, especially like that had to have been just sort of everything. Like I was born in 83, so I know you're a little, you're a little bit under than me, uh, young, uh, sorry, older than me, but you know, I, I to all my friends I know that, you know, are in the age group that were very present when those Star Wars movies started to come out. Like, I I, I can only imagine that just took everything over, you know, became yeah. everything for everybody. It really did. I mean, I think about going, to, you know, to the store and just sitting in front of, you know, an aisle of action figures and going, wow, you know, who do I want to best tell the story that I have in my head right now to continue what I saw on the screen? Um you know, and it was like, cause you know, you only had so much money. I mean, I didn't have any money. It was my folks and I'm not going to ask them for, yeah. 
you know, I mean, I probably did ask for everything that was there, you know, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, that yeah. wasn't happening. <laughs> but, um, you know, um, you know, so that, that, yeah, I mean, Star Wars is huge. I thought He-Man He was huge for me too. I remember this one moment, um, I think there was a, on, on, um, there was like a contest, uh, for He-Man. Like you could draw, if you drew this character, a character, like a unique, you know, original character and submitted it, you had the opportunity to win that, to, to win the creation of that figure. And like he could be a part of their line. If, Whoa. And I remember like drawing, like having all of these, um, these sketch, like I would draw these sketches and I'm, I, I dabble in art, but I'm not a sequential artist in any, uh, anyway, like I'm horrible at it. But I remember this one character in particular and his name, very unique. It was Scarface. <laughs> Um, nice. nice. Uh, no I copyright think, problem there at all. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, like he, but Scarface, and now that I think about it, I was like, man, he's almost the or original Coheed, like in terms of like his science oh, wow. fiction makeup with, you know, there's like, it's like such a kid thing. It's like one hand's a gun and one hand's the sword, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. Like, um, you know, uh, so, uh, but yeah, I, I think about that and I'm like, man, I think. I think I took, I think I was inspired by my younger self to create this character. <laughs> oh, that's so cool. Uh, I appreciate you sharing that. Um, so, I get, you know, when, um, when did playing guitar come into your life? Like, was, like, was there like a big shift where all of a sudden you're like, now I really like rock music or like, what, what was the thing there? Yeah. So, um, this is a, this might be a long story, so I apologize, but, um, give it to me. <laughs> but, uh, when I, so I moved from a small town called Havistraw to a neighboring town, um, uh, called, uh, was, which is Nyack. That's where I ended Nyack, up growing yeah. up and going to high school. But in middle school, I met this guy, um, who had also moved to the town. That was like, you know, and he was in, I think I was wearing maybe like a Def Leppard shirt and he was wearing, um. I don't know. I think, I think it was like a Cinderella backpatch and we were like the rock dudes. Right. Yeah. And, uh, and, uh, I love the idea he, of a Cinderella backpatch, by the way. Yeah. That's sick. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Nice. It's so funny. Um, I, I just see us right now in my mind. Like, I wish I could just get in a time machine and watch these weird moments like play out. But, um, right. But I remember he was, t he wanted to start a band and I didn't play an instrument and I, and he was my friend. He's still my friend. He actually lives like only a few blocks away from me in my neighborhood. Oh, I love His that. name is Patrick. Um, and, uh, and so he wanted to start a band and, and I was very excited about this idea, but I didn't play an instrument. And I thought, you know, the easiest instrument must be the drums. So I'll play the drums. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and like, and so uh, that's my plan. I'm going to play the drums. And, uh, and so we're really, um, anxious to get started. So we start to flyer the town looking for other musicians. And, uh, we actually get a call from this, this young man who plays guitar and comes over to the house. And mind you, like, again, I don't even have drums. I was about to ask, do you even have a drum set? No, like I didn't have <laughs> drums. Uh, our idea of a rehearsal was really just Patrick's bedroom, which was a small bedroom that this guy brought his little amplifier in with his pedals and he started to play and he was like really, really good, like way outside of like where, you know, he was further down the road than we were. Sure. Uh, clearly, I don't even have drums. Yeah, um, yeah exactly. But, <laughs> but so he's, he, uh, 
a bit. So he starts talking to us about like, you know, me and my drum set. And I'm like, I don't have a drum set yet, but I'm going to get it. And he's like, well, listen, if I'm going to be in your band, the one thing we need to do is play Rush covers. And I didn't really know who Rush was. Um, and, and at this moment in time actually gave me a distaste for the band because it was so negative. But so again, he's telling me we have to play Rush covers and I'm the drummer and I'm like, yeah, "Yeah, sure. We can play, (laughs) we'll play Rush covers. You're great. We want you in the band. (laughs) Yeah. Like, um, and then that night, so he left and that night he had a friend of his call my friend Patrick and, uh, and he told my friend Patrick that we were a bunch of dreamers and nothing would happen for us. Um, mm-hmm. That, you know, and so that kind of, so my friend Pat had called me and I was like, you know what? Fuck that. I'm going to play guitar. <laughs> so I go to the closet yeah. and I pick out that, um, that acoustic guitar that my dad had laying in there. And that was it. That's when I became interested in, in music. How old were you at that point? I think I was 12. Oh, like wow. 12, 13. Okay. Yeah. Somewhere yeah. in there. Because we had just started middle school. And how old was this person that came over with his guitar? He may have been like 16, maybe a few years older than us. Okay. But, yeah, yeah, but, yeah. I, <laughs> I had this, envision, this vision in my head of like a, a 25-year-old coming over just being like, <laughs> wait, wait, so the rehearsal is, is us, we're just in a bedroom and you're going to what, play on, like, <laughs> play drums on some books? Like, what's On some pillows, here? man. That's what I was, <laughs> yeah. I was like, ready, I got my drumsticks. I don't, actually, I don't even know if I had drumsticks. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. It's so good. It's so good. I mean, it, it brings me back to, I mean, I remember being in junior high where, um, I, I, you know, I got the generic first guitar, which a lot of people, you know, it's like the Squire Strat and, uh, and my, and my friends were like talking same situation. Like, yeah, I'm going to play drums, you know, I'll be the drummer. And then you start, <laughs> you like come up with a band name, you start designing stuff. It's like, you don't, you don't even know how to play your instruments at all yet. But just the excitement of the idea of being in a band is what I think pushed so many, so much of us when we're, uh, in those infancy stages of, uh, dreaming about a career so I, I i relate to that for sure but i just love flyering um when you uh haven't even you don't even have a symbol yet that's that's awesome I know. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> uh do you remember what your first like a recording experience was like or what was the first band actually we, we can go back just a little bit what was the first actual band that had a song um so we had there was well, it, well, the first one that actually did anything with like recording was called Dark Ecstasy. <laughs> um, yeah. And, uh, you know, we record the first recording experience we had was on a four track cassette uh, deck. Um, nice. And it was recorded by a friend of ours, um, brother. Um, and, you know, that was really it. That was like the first time we got to listen back to the. I actually still have that tape, it's oh, in my awesome. closet. I keep everything. Cool. I'm a bit of a hoarder. Um, Same. But, I uh, love that. Yeah. So, it, but that's that was our first band. It was Dark Ecstasy. It was myself, Patrick, our friend Rory, and the, Rory's brother Gary, who played bass and recorded the, the thing. Um, and our first concert, which we never got a chance to play, was supposed to be at a Battle of the Bands, and we put up flyers that said um, said something like Dark Ecstasy. It was more of like a like sort of a punk ish band that kind of had a some elements of like the misfits slash danzig um okay but uh it um the the sub the sub the subtext was or the 
the subtitle of the flyer was like, wear black and go insane. And, (laughs) and so we got, uh, disqualified. Like we couldn't even play the battle of the bands because they said they thought we were trying to insinuate a riot. Just too Um, edgy. I know. And we're just a bunch of silly kids. And, um, and how old were you at that point? Uh, we were probably, you know, probably still like 13. That's the thing is I, yeah, like what, you know, guitar was, very interesting instrument because I would learn how to play through fake books, but songs that I never knew. Like I would play songs like A Taste of Honey and I had no idea what that was. And uh, But I would just make up, you know, my own, you know, I'd follow the chords and sing. Yeah, yeah. And like sing, I would try to sing the melody um, to get a sense of what I thought the song was. But here's the thing that taught, I think really taught us was our friend Rory's father worked at a tape manufacturing plant. Uh, that manufactured tapes for Caroline Records. And mm, okay. in the basement where we rehearsed, he had all of these cassette decks, the, or these cassette tapes. And so we would like kind of sneak them. And a few of them that we snuck were uh, Legacy of Brutality by the Misfits. Um, so that's like, a, you know, that was a very, that was like, I think the perfect record for kids to listen to yeah. if you wanted to learn. Cause it's the song structures, you know, they were easy songs to learn and the song structures were there. They were, you know, they were, they're kind of a pop band in a way. Right. I mean, oh, those definitely. songs are very catchy. Um, the, the others were, uh, uh, Naked Reagan and, uh, Gay Bikers on Acid. Um, and what was the other one? Oh, the Meat Men. Those were the tapes that I, I chose to take. And, and I think I, I really gravitated towards a legacy brutality because again, I think it really taught me the idea of song structure. From that, did you, did you go through like a big punk phase? Like, were you, were you like a punk, punk kid in like your, uh, in, in your teenage years? Somewhat. I was like more of like, I don't know what I was. I really, I kind of liked everything. Um, so it was really hard to establish an identity, like, through like music like we definitely played in more of a punk friendly scene like um especially when um coheed started like you know early high school era like you know going up to woodstock and playing in the scene up there that was a very like there's more punk oriented but like we were kind of the odd you know we we never really figured out our identity until we became coheed you know, and even still, I'm not entirely sure what, you know, I know we're a rock band, but, you know, I don't know, <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't know where we go, where do you put us? Right, but, uh, well, I, that's one of those things that I've, I've, I've always been very fascinated with the Coheed in general, in general, because you've been able to exist in these different worlds without ever compromising what the sound was. Not like, not compromising, like as if like, you were trying to fit into a certain scene. I mean, you know, like it, it's, it, you've always tra- stayed true to what I think the vision of the band was, but you've existed in these different little sections of, of the different subcultures. And, and that is something I've always found very fascinating. Something I've always very, very much admired about what you've been able to do. Um, and it's funny, I was looking at, you know, just doing like, just brief research uh in the in the short time that we had before doing this uh this interview and i saw one of the band names did so the one you're talking about did that turn into beautiful losers oh so beautiful losers was pre-coheed yeah okay so what i'm my first question just i is that by chance a leonard cohen reference because that was one of his books yep absolutely we took it from leonard Co- from the book 
That oh was, my guy. Yeah. Oh my, you're my guy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm just, I'm just like a ma- I'm a massive Leonard Leonard fan. So when I saw that, I was like, oh, I gotta know if that's a Leonard Cohen reference. That's I also, super cool. I also saw that you did the last record with Ross Robinson. Did you sing through the uh, oh, 251? Yes, dude. The Leonard, yeah, yes. that's cool. That's yes. super cool, dude. That, I'll tell you that, I mean, uh, since since you asked, just the short version of that was so like we, you know, we did one song with him last year just as like a tryout, you know, like I was really intimidated by him um, and, and for obvious reasons. And and uh, so when we were, you know, he doesn't know anything about me. I know a lot about him, but he doesn't know that I know a lot about him, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> his folklore and whatnot. And um, so we go into the vocal booth and he's kind of giving us a little tour of the spot. And he just goes and he like shows me this microphone that big, you know, it looks like it's a tank, you know? And yeah. I'm like, and I was like, uh, he's, he's like, yeah, you know, I've done every single one of my records on this. Like every single record has been sung onto this mic. And I was like thinking about the legacy with that alone, you know, the cure at the drive and all this stuff, corn, slipknot, whatever. And I was like, I was like, oh, that's super cool. I was like, where did it come from? And he's like, well, you know, it was originally Nick Caves, but you know, Leonard Cohen sung the future on this, re- on this mic. <laughs> And my, I was like, everyone in the band just like looked at me and was like, (laughs) I was like, you, what? Like, you know, like I have a Leonard Cohen tattoo on my arm. Like, I'm, I'm just like, are you serious? He's like, yeah, he's sung the whole record on this. Like, he had no idea how much that was going to mean to me and how much that just like was a part of everything with making that record. Like, I would just look at that microphone and just be inspired as as silly as that kind of sounds. No, that's super cool. That's awesome. I think that's not oh, at all. That's so awesome. When did you discover Leonard? Just out of curiosity. Like, um, when did that become a thing? To, uh, honestly, through Travis and and Rory, the guys that I played okay. in. Um, well, Travis from Coheed is a huge Leonard Cohen fan. He has a, a, a Leonard Cohen tattoo. But um, Rory and, and Travis were so obsessed with Leonard that then, then you know, I sort of, I sort of, you know, by proxy became a fan. Um yeah. You know, and I think the first uh, record was the best of, you know, right? The songs of Leonard Cohen. Um, oh, which starts is like the Marianne, most incredible Marianne. best of. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's like, it's the best of the first four records, which are untouchable records. Yeah. yeah. That's, it's like an unbelievable best of. Yeah. And then I just got into the poetry, you know, just looking at the books. Because, cause again, like, you know, they were such big fans and, you know, we'd go over to their house and I'd just kind of look at the books and I'd pull books and kind of take snippets. And I think that's where, you know, the idea for Beautiful Losers kind of came from. Um, you know, we had, we had another um, band name, you know, that was something that I would do is, you know, just go into bookshelves and like kind of come up with stuff. There was another band name that we were, uh, we called ourselves after Dark Se- dark Ecstasy. It was uh, Toxic Parents. And it was after like a self-help book for, uh, you know, um, you know, recovering, you know, recovering addicts, you know, uh, yeah. you know, uh, and I remember like coming home and telling my parents like, Hey, you know, our band name, we changed it to toxic parents. And they were like, they're like, I, I didn't really realize that that's what, you know, cause my dad had, yeah. had his battle with, uh, with some chemical dependency and, and, and I, and I didn't realize like it hit so close to home. Like we're just like, oh, yeah, no. toxic parents, <laughs> you know? Oh, well, uh, to, to relate to that, our, our drummer, Elliot, uh, he changed, he ended up changing the name, but he put out records under the name dad punchers. And, uh, <laughs> you can you'd imagine that was probably not the best conversation with his father. Like, yeah, I started a band called dad punchers. <laughs> <laughs> So you went from Beautiful Losers into the band uh, turned into Shibuti, right? That's correct. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. Nice. I remember, <laughs> it's funny, I, learning that later, because obviously knowing the second stage record as well as I do, when uh, you you say that in the song that always stood out, and then later learning, like, oh, yeah, it's, that, was the, that was the band name before, a little little uh reference uh but uh how how did uh how did equal vision come your way like that's uh you know being so affiliated with like punk and hardcore as that label was um is um yeah like how how did that how did that come your way and and um i'm just curious about how that whole experience felt uh being attached to that kind of a legacy of a label yeah you know we we had a friend named ashton um that you know wanted to act as the manager of the band and um and he was he lived in upstate new york he actually was in a movie he starred as the son uh next to vigo morganson in uh the a history of violence um whoa yeah so he he went out out to la and became an actor but at the time he was an albany guy and he really liked our band and he wanted to help you know, do something for us. And so he, he shopped it around. Um, and EVR was one of the labels. Um, I don't think they really liked the band. Um, at first, you know, we had this two song demo and it was actually the two songs that were on that, that album, uh, Delirium Trigger and 33. And, um, and they, I think, I think they weren't, they weren't entirely sure about the band, but there was somebody there and I could be, my, my facts could be, uh, all over sure. the place, but uh, it's it's been twenty years. You're, yeah, you're fine. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> it's fine. But this uh, Kirk, Kurt, uh, Kurt at, at the label, Kurt Tanner, um, I believe, really liked the band and championed the idea of coming out and seeing us. And so they did. They came out to a bar um, in Albany, New York, called uh, Valentine's. And, oh, I know that place. Yeah, yeah, and they. And I don't know if we had such a great show that night. I think a guitar broke and I ended up singing on the, uh, I, th- I think what would later become In Keeping Secrets of Silent Earth 3. I think at the time I named it like Upper Armories of Third Deep, like from a phrase in Lord of the Rings. Uh, it was like the working title. And I, I think, I think, if, I think the guitar broke and then I just played the song without the band or something happened, some technical difficulty. Um, and uh just like out of, out of a movie bad situation with the label coming to see you play like one of those things you're like these don't really happen it never gets that bad <laughs> <Yeah>. but <laughs> it was truth cr- be told yeah horror <laughs> it was a nightmare and then, like, <laughs> and then um i think and again I, I could be mistaken but i i believe that they weren't sure about it they left and then i think they decided to come and see us again and i guess maybe we had a much better show and um and then, you know, they decided to sign us and, and, uh, we started making what we thought was a series of demos, which would eventually become second stage. Um, but at the time, you know, they, we weren't sure about the name, like, you know, Shibuti was something that, you know, I had a friend that was sort of like this odd, like nucleus of our group. And he went off and his like, uh, a friend of ours named him Shibuti, but he went off to like a, a cult out in Sedona. And, and I just thought like, you know, that quest and that journey that this guy was about to take, I thought it just, all of a sudden this character in my mind kind of shows up with that name. And uh, I think that's why we adopted it, but it just didn't make a whole lot of sense. Um, I mean, it made sense for us who we were because we were just like this playing all sorts of types of music, like 
jazz, metal, punk, you know, pop. It was just, I used to think when I was, when I was in Shibuti, I used to write in these personalities. Like I had four personalities and they all like wrote in a certain like sector of my creativity. So there was Papa Porpoise, Mr. M, Professor Plum, after the clue title (laughs) and Camille. Yeah. And they all wrote like, you know, you know, like Professor Plum wrote the progressive stuff. Camille wrote the ballads. Papa Porpoise wrote like the more darker, heavier songs. You know, Mr. M wrote the pop stuff. It was like, it was so like, what? what wow. Was that? I was like, it was just out of my mind. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, uh, and then, and then, but I, then I realized like, you know, it just, it didn't have, um, it didn't have like this direction. It was just doing everything we possibly could. And Coheed, like when I started writing the Coheed material, that's when I started to think of the concept and like who I was at that time and the story I wanted to tell. Because I noticed as like a lyricist, I was afraid to tell my story. I'm, I was so introverted that I didn't want to let anybody in. So I thought, why not hide my story behind this like facade called the Amory Wars. The Amory Wars was the name of the, the Am- Amory was actually the name of the street I grew up on. Um, and, and Coheed and Cambria were loosely based on my folks and I played a role in it. And it was a way for me to kind of tell my story of adolescence, like this confused kid that, um, you know, just destined for failure. Cause that's ultimately what happens in the story of the Amory Wars is that the character destroys everything, but with this hope of like, some redemption that something good will be created out of that. Um, you know, uh, but, but so I, I, you know, that's, but so when I was writing that Coheed stuff, time consumer, everything evil, I started to see that path a little clearer. Um, and I thought, you know, Shibuti is not the right name. And Coheed and Cambria was the name that I was giving this project on the side and everybody seemed to like it. But, with liking it, I also like introduced them to this idea that Coheed and Cambria were basically the Adam and Eves of this science fiction uh, chronology that um that I had you know in my head that I wanted to tell you know through records and 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 uh, counterpart stories, whether they're comics or um you know illustrated novels or things like that. So right, so you uh. You know the, that first record comes out, and then you know you it, you start touring pretty heavily. I think I, I think the first time I saw you was on the West Coast with uh, it was that Thrice Thursday tour. Oh right, would that? Yeah. Would, yeah, I remember seeing. I remember I went out to the I think the Orange County show on that. I had a I already had a pretty close cl- cl- uh, close relationship with the Thursday guys, but um, so like I you know I, I was going out to that show anyway, but I, I remember being really psyched because I really enjoyed the second stage record. Um, it was such an eclectic time, and and did you did you ever feel like you had a hard time fitting on some of those bills? Obviously, like if it was much more of like a metalcore band and things like that. Like, um, was there certain tours that you felt? Uh, were easier or harder or d- do things like that? Do you remember much of that? Um, I, I do. I mean, I think, you know, I just had such a hard time being the front guy, <laughs> but, uh, um, you know, sure. so like just that battle of like becoming the focus was, was, could be, you know, 
like at times felt like self-destructive, um, you know, but, uh, but, um, like in terms of like touring, I mean, I think, I think we had a lot of great, um, great tours, like just great experiences. Like our first tour with, um, Breaking Pangea, uh, that was pretty much just a Northeast run. Um, and, uh, and, you know, it, we, it taught us a lot. I mean, our first show we played in, we played to an empty garage and a pile of clothes. <laughs> it was like it's like we're on the up. <laughs> yep, <laughs> was, here we go. It was the wildest thing. Um yeah. but I think I think one of the best tour I think some of my favorite tours are the ones that do involve Thursday. Um you know the, for, certainly the first one we did with them, uh the the tour we did with Hot Water, Hot Water Music and Thrice, that was another highlight of a tour coming up. Um you know, but but everybody you know, it was super welcoming to us because, you know, we did feel a bit odd, you know, being, you know, I think, I think Equal Vision signing Saves the Day kind of helped because we did have some like pop-ish, like straight ahead elements in what we do. Um, yeah. But Equal Vision being like primarily a hardcore label could have, was a hair intimidating um, for us. Like, did we feel in, you know, in the right space? Um but the, everybody was so welcoming. I think, you know, I, I had a hard time letting go of that indie kind of mentality. Like, I remember when Equal Vision – I'm sorry, I'm completely taking a left turn. I remember when Equal Vision um, told us, like, at In Keeping Secrets, that they thought it would be a great idea for us to move to the major, you know? It's like – and we were still, like, unsure of that. Like, we just really enjoyed where we were. But they were like, you know, this is the right move for you guys to to take you to the next level because we're we're not sure we can, and we're just it's like, ah. That was interesting. It's funny you say that because when I was looking stuff up, for some reason in my head, in keeping secrets was on a major. And when I was like, oh, whoa, Equal Vision did that record too. It was Good Apollo that was the first major. That that was that just like struck me because it, you know, I remember I have a I I do remember when when second stage was really hitting like it was one of those records that everybody just kind of collectively agreed like this is awesome but i can't define it you know what i'm saying yeah, like yeah everybody everybody really liked it but didn't know what it was because you were affi- exactly like you're affiliated with a label that at the time was putting out bane records and converge records and and things like that and and yeah it obviously saves the day as well but like you know it was uh it was one of those things where it's like everybody loved it and was excited about it. You know, I'm so curious like what it was like going to Columbia and like did they have, you know, did they have any idea what to do with you? Cuz it's such <laughs> interesting music. You know, like I that, that was the first like I was writing out questions. I was like I don't know if there's a polite way to ask that, but it's like, what, like, what does a major label do with a band like yours at that time? It's, it's fascinating, you know? <laughs> yeah, I have no idea. <laughs> we, uh, <laughs> you know, I think they tried to get a producer involved, but we, you know, we had um, a relationship with the guys that had done the previous records and we wanted to, you know, do right by them and give them this opportunity. Um, and we were comfortable, you know, we were comfortable recording up in Woodstock and, you know, we were home. I, I think, again, I think it goes with, the, you know, that whole idea of like, we weren't even sure, at least for me, like, I wasn't sure that I wanted to leave Equal Vision, um, you know, after In Keeping Secrets. So I wanted to, I wanted to be as comfortable as possible. And I wanted to do what, 
you know, what we do, you know? And I think, I think yeah. they understood that. I think they understood like, you know, this, you know, if, if it's not broke, don't fix it. I mean, sure. When it came time to releasing singles, they had their own opinions as to what they thought were the singles, but that's like always the battle for, for us. Um, yeah. Yeah. I wanted to speak on that for a second. I, I, so Michael Birnbaum and Chris Bittner, they, they were, what's your relationship with them? Were they just, were they local guys? What was, uh, cause yeah, I mean, I love that you stayed doing records with them for the first three. Yeah, they were local. So they, so Josh before Coheed used to play in this band three, um, with his brother, Joey and Birnbaum and that, and Chris actually was the bass player in that band. And Birnbaum had the studio in which they built to kind of promote that band. Um, and, uh, you know, Josh would probably be better at all the details, but that band actually got signed to Universal. And I think they invested in this studio and they built it. And, and Birnbaum just was like, you know, the guy that was up there and had the studio. And we ended up recording actually 33 in Delirium with him. Um, it just, you know, it just, he kind of became what we like to call his Uncle Burmy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, he's just kind of like, uh, you know, almost a, a, a very kind of like a mentor. Um, yeah. You know, and, uh, and yeah, that was pretty much it. You know, we just enjoyed the company. And like I said, I just wanted to feel comfortable. I felt comfortable with them and I didn't, you know, w- I, you know, again, I was, I was apprehensive, like moving into the world of the major label and doing the, um, you know, jumping through the hoops of like, all right, well, we've got to get you this guy to, you know, do this. I mean, I'm, I, I don't even know what I'm doing right now. Like, <laughs> like right. I, I just want to figure out, you know, myself. Um, and, and then maybe we can approach those ideas. But, uh, but again, I think they, they were pretty, um, pretty cool with like just letting us kind of do our thing and there was never um any questions you know about about what we were doing yeah i I could see sticking with them especially on the columbia record is like you kind of maintaining some sort of control over what you're used to you know it's like well i guess if we're going to columbia i still want to do it with the guys that made us successful so far you know it's like some bands kind of forget that sometimes you know, and just like want to just go off and do the biggest thing possible. But it's like, maybe stay safe for for the first one on the big label, you know, like if it's worked before, give it a shot. And it, it seems like that's maybe what the mentality was. Is that fair to say? Yeah. I mean, you know, here's a, here's an experience that kind of shook me a little bit. And this was around the time we were sort of getting courted. Um, you know, we we went to uh, Epic Records. And, uh, you know, we met the label head at Epic Records. And I remember walking into the office and I think this is what kind of scared me because it's like, oh, this is real. Like we're, we are now like, this is a, I don't know, like a, it's just, this is like the, the, the record label version of Empire Records or something. I don't know. It was like, <laughs> but like, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. but this guy, he was, I remember like walking into the, into the room and the chair was turned back to us. And I mean, I think he was a cigar shy and a, and a metal hand. I mean, he was practically Dr. Claw, you know, like from Inspector Gadget. Exactly. That's all I'm envisioning. (laughs) Yeah. I'm like, I like, uh, and we like stand in there and we're clearly there for a meeting, but he's like, I think at the time was listening to some Eddie Vedder song. I forget his name, but, but he made us like sit there and listen to this Eddie Vedder song, which is fine. But at the same time, I'm just like, 
there's just Why something. This? Yeah, like it, it, this feels like like very strange to me. Um, yeah, and scary, and like, and that. So I think that's when it was like to me, it was like we we can't we we need to hold we need to hold on to what we whatever it is that we can before this starts to happen. You know what I mean? I don't want this to happen, you know? Um, And yeah, we, we never, we didn't do Epic. We went to Columbia, which is the other side of Sony, but, uh, but yeah, it was like, it was such a strange, I remember we just started, we were just laughing at the end of the, at the end of the meeting, like, what the hell was that? Like, I I don't even remember. All I remember was the chair, the chair's back. That's it. Um, the most evil villainy sort of like a- any any character that we all have of like scary major label guy that was that sounds like the uh, the exact yeah. archetype of what that is. It's incredible. So I, I have to ask, and you know I don't want to take up too much of your time today, but I have to ask. Going for the fourth record, you then go big. You go Rick Rubin, Nick Raskolin. It's like how intimidating was that situation? Well, you know that was. That was interesting. Yeah. Um, you know, because our whole um everybody that had worked on Good Apollo had pretty much been let go, with maybe a few exceptions of like a couple of marketing people. But yeah, it felt like everyone story. was gone. Yeah. Um and we had we had actually several ARs before Rick got involved because I think at that time Rick became the chairman of one of the chairmen of the companies. Um mm. but uh I, I'm pretty sure. I, I again, my memory, eh, it's okay. Um, but uh, <laughs> like, but let me tell you about this episode of uh, <laughs> of, of Ghostbusters, the yeah. cartoon from. Uh, <laughs> um, but uh, so 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 we had um, Michael Kaplan, I believe, and and Michael Kaplan was was great. I think he had done like a bunch of Aussie records, but he he's kind of the guy that sort of turned me on to. Uh, a better rig in terms of demoing, you know, trying to capture moments. Cause that's what I always found. Like when I would demo things, I, I felt like I was capturing moments that I could never recreate in the studio mm. because I'm completely isolated. I can get into my own head and I, you know, I'm, I, I'm, I'm an introvert. So it, uh, you know, I, I like to be alone. And I think that's where I can, I can really sort of flex the personalities that lay inside inside me. So, and, and certainly let them project in the songs at whatever characters, perspectives they're coming from or things like that. Um, but he was great. Cause he, I still have a lot of the, the rig that, that he, uh, that he built for me in my pseudo office. And, uh, oh. but then after that, I think we got like Steve Lillywhite was going to potentially be an A&R for us who had done all those like uh, U2 albums. Wow. And then I think, and then I think eventually it was Rick Rubin. And then, you know, we had Travis and I actually, because at that time, half the band had sort of fallen victim to chemical dependency. So, you know, it was Travis and I um, going out to Malibu to one of Rick's spots and meeting with him and just kind of talking about the approach. And at the time, we were actually thinking about uh, Tony Visconti for the album. Um, who had who had done like those Bowie records and T Rex, uh, and he had some really great ideas. Um, you know, uh, he was talking about like doing having Malcolm McDowell do uh, um, like a voiceover for like you know ca- you know like a and I was like oh that's so cool like uh, that's sick yeah yeah um, and uh, 
but you know, but but Rick felt like you know maybe we needed someone like you know like Nick or you know and 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 you know at this time we were like you know we haven't really followed the labels guidance and here we are now a completely new uh system let's let's just give it a shot and this is the first time we've actually we go out to LA we make a record and um you know and and that's pretty much it i mean you know it it, it felt like the right time to kind of make that move cuz again there were so many changes whether it would have been in the label or the band kind of falling apart um it just made kind of sense like here we are let's start fresh and try some new ideas. Yeah, I feel like I could do this with you all day. And I, you know, if it's, uh, if it's fine, I'd like to wrap it up with that. Uh, with the question of asking, like, do you remember the first time where you felt like you had, you know, accomplished this thing that you'd been working so hard towards? I mean, I know, I know com- we, we only touched a little bit on the comic book side. So if it involves that, I totally understand. But between music and comics or whatever it is, like, do you remember the first time where you're like, oh my God, like this is happening? Um, what is that first time? And I know I had the question. I thought about it a little bit. Um, oh no, it's I, fine. Yeah, it's you know I I started yeah not to not to not to pull back the curtain, but uh, to the people listening, like I like to give this kind of a, a a little preview to to my guests because it is a hard question. You know, like there you know you're dealing with being humble and you're dealing with also like what was that yeah. thing? You know, I mean, I think for me it may have been when we started packing up the van. You know, it wasn't, Oh yeah. you know, that first time, um, you know, cause, cause I didn't, I didn't go, I went to, I went to school for audio engineering, but it was like a trade school. It wasn't like a college experience. You know, I was like, I get on the bus, get on the train, get to Manhattan, do my thing, then split. And, um, you know, and, and I think that's what it kind of felt like that. Like, it felt like a, like we were going to college in a weird way. Um, like, and, and we were, you know, we were, we had this, we had the chance to really like invest our lives in this thing that we all found so important. Um, and we weren't, you know, we, the, all of the emotions, you know, you're scared, you're excited. Um, you know, we're getting in this van that like, do we even know it's going to make it down the road? You know, um, our families are like, you know, try giving us food because they think we're going to like die out there. Right. Um, uh, I'm just curious. What, what was the first van? What kind of van like was it? It was like a Ford. Um, it was like a utility van. Like a class. It was. It, okay. Did, like windows or there no were windows? windows, but it was like flat. Okay. Flat green. Like it was, it was, oh, it was like an nice. army van. It was huge. It was like, it if i just feel like it was like a a machine but it did not it only lasted that one tour right. <laughs> but um yeah but it was it was gnarly like it, you know not comfortable cuz it was kind of old again it was more of utility whoever had it before us was using it for some sort of utility um uh, but uh right. it was it was gnarly you feel every bump yeah, yeah all of that and we didn't have a a trailer at the time everything was like everything sure. was in you know, in the back. So, so it was very cramped and, um, but it, you know, I think that was probably the moment. Cause you know, it's like, that's what I wanted to do with my life. I wanted to be, I wanted to, you know, that's, I wanted to express myself. I, and, and I wanted to do that with my friends musically. I feel like that's where most of my best conversations are, are, you know, in music, 
you know, not the greatest out in the world. Like, you know, I find myself like walking around the neighborhood and I'll, I will, will not stop to get food until, cause I'm just like, I don't really want to communicate. <laughs> so I'll wait, I'll walk all around yeah. Manhattan until I get back to Brooklyn and like, uh, and you know, but it, it just, I, for me, it's like, you know, I just want, um, I wanted to do that with my life and, and, uh, and here I was, I was actually giving it a shot. And I thought I was very proud of that moment. Oh, that's so cool. That's so cool. So I don't know if you, if you still deal with this the way, the way I do, but you know, that feeling of your first tours and, and, you know, right before you play, you look out and like, is there anyone here? You know, like, I hope I, I, that's never gone away from me. Yeah. You know, yeah. like even like if we headline and, you know, I always kind of, it's always a blessing and a curse, like getting to, hear numbers of you know how shows have sold and whatever like even if it's a show that i think has done pretty well you know i still find myself like peeking out the curtain being like everyone yeah just, dude, you know, know, like, <laughs> it that doesn't no. go away it doesn't go you know and if it and if it does go away i don't believe you know i, I think you're a phony <laughs> you know like if you're not if you're not terrified of if you're just too confident in the in the in the packed show just fucking kick rocks you're not you're uh you're not one of me you're you're not you're not my kind um Yo, Claudio, this was awesome. Thank you so much for doing this. I really had a great time. Uh, I, it, it makes me uh, it makes me long for these conversations in person, and uh, I hope that you know we can cross paths in person. You know, again, yo, this was awesome. We can do this all day. I, I know it. Uh, if there's if I could find a reason to have you back for a show about first experiences, I'm going to take it. So, <laughs> yeah, I love this. This was awesome. I had a really good time. Thank Jeremy. you so much. Awesome. Have a good day. All right. You too, brother. All right. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Hey, thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe or follow the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you choose to listen. And if you can spare a moment to give us a rating and review on Apple, it helps the show gain more visibility and that can make all the difference. Thank you, and I'll see you again next week. Yeah.